this is The Guardian. I'm Jane Lee, and this is The Full Story. Three children in three different states have all recently died under the supervision of hospitals. And their deaths are now prompting doctors and human rights experts to ask, how does race affect the decisions healthcare workers make about their patients? And does it determine the care they end up receiving? It's not a bonus to ensure that all Australians should expect the same healthcare outcomes for the treatments they receive, given they pay taxes like everybody else and given they contribute and participate in community society the same way as everybody else. Today, race in Australia's health system. It's Tuesday, the 2nd of August. Joe, we don't often hear of children dying under the supervision of hospitals in Australia, but there have been a few high-profile cases in the past year and a half. Tell me about them. So these kinds of deaths are rare in Australia and, and they're shocking and they're tragic whenever they happen. Joe Hinchliffe is a reporter at Guardian Australia. It's important to say that two of the deaths are currently being investigated. So there are still questions being asked about the specific circumstances. And there's not any one single explanation which can account for any one of these tragedies. But what we can say is that all three children were from Indian backgrounds. And in these cases, the parents asked for their child's care to be escalated And they all say that healthcare professionals refused to do so until it was too late. Okay, let's break down what happened to each of these children. And let's start with Aishwarya. Aishwarya Ashwath was a seven-year-old girl from Perth. Her parents took her to the Perth Children's Hospital last year. They asked for multiple times for help, but they were ignored. Uh, She waited two hours to see a doctor and ended up dying of organ failure from a bacterial infection on the 3rd of April, 2021. My daughter was always happy. She was so ambitious. She wanted to achieve a lot of things in her life. She was very talented, always happy and caring. While I interviewed the families of Amrita and Aishwarya for The Guardian, the audio throughout this episode is from interviews given to SBS, ABC and Channel 9. Since the death of their daughter, Aishwarya's parents have been vocal about the need for improvements in the healthcare system. And that includes a focus on highlighting multiculturalism. They say they believe their daughter would still be alive if she'd been attended to earlier. This shouldn't have happened. If any of those showed a little bit of mercy to us, our our child would be with us now. A little bit of a compassion. We don't expect them to be a superhuman. Just do your job. And what have we learned, if anything, about her death since that time? There have been multiple reviews into her death, including an initial investigation by the hospital and another by an independent panel commissioned by the Western Australian Parliament. That found, quote, suboptimal staff numbers and, quoting again, demoralised and exhausted healthcare workers, which we know aren't problems that are unique to Perth in the depths of this pandemic. Mm. The independent review made 30 recommendations that are set to be implemented across West Australian hospitals, including recognising parental input to escalate care and ensuring there's adequate levels of nursing and and medical staff. Also recommended was a review of staff awareness of culturally and linguistically diverse communities. 
And the hospital and Western Australia's former health minister, Roger Cook, apologised to Aishwarya's family. I want to apologise to them again for the tragic loss of their seven-year-old daughter. It has undoubtedly been an extremely difficult experience for them. Cook said none of the independent panel believed race played an issue in relation to her care. But the Chair of Child and Adolescent Health Services in Western Australia, Dr Rosanna Cavalinha, said the hospital needs to do more to be more inclusive of its patients. We acknowledge that they experienced a lack of urgency, a lack of communication and a lack of compassion. We know that they were not heard on that night and they felt so unsupported after the loss of their daughter. So we know our service has to do much better. We have to be inclusive and responsive. But Aishwari's family has reportedly said that an apology just isn't good enough and that the system needs to change. Okay, and then a year later, another little girl died in Melbourne while at Monash Children's Hospital. Tell me about her. Amrita Lanka was eight years old. Her parents brought her into the hospital with symptoms including stomach pains, vomiting and fever. She was also having trouble breathing. They had a referral from a GP who suspected appendicitis and they believed that this was the correct diagnosis. 17 hours later, healthcare workers moved her into a short stay room in preparation to discharge her. And that's when they realised her condition was critical and began urgently trying to revive her. Amrita died on the 30th of April, about a year after Aishwarya, and the hospital and the coroner are undertaking a review of her death. I know you spoke with Amrita's parents. What did they say? Well, when I asked them if they thought that racism had something to do with Amrita's death, Chandra Lanka, her, her father, said he did not see racism in the hours before she died. But he did wonder if there might be a different kind of racism involved, one where, and I'm quoting here, No one says anything to you, but your concerns are ignored. Mm. Amrita's mother, Satya, said that medical staff should take parents' concerns more seriously. If they could put put more attention to her, maybe today my Amrita could be sitting next to me. So that's two families in the space of a year saying that they didn't think that healthcare professionals took their concerns about their children's health conditions seriously enough. And more recently, there was another child who died in Brisbane, right? That's right. Five-year-old Hian Kapil. So Hian's GP had diagnosed him with gastro and said that he needed to take Panadol. He continued to be sick and his pain got worse over the next six days. And he was taken to the Logan Hospital south of Brisbane. Other patients who were there that day described incredibly busy and chaotic scenes in the hospital that day. And Hian's father said in an interview with Channel 9 that the hospital insisted Hian was okay. We were not going to be heard or anything. Even he was saying from his mouth that I have too much pain. I, I can't walk, sorry. And uh, they still keep telling him, no, it's just gastro. Again, in this case, Hian's father, Utum Kapil, says he pushed for his son to stay in hospital, but he was refused and Hian was instead discharged. Back at home, Utum said his son told him he wanted to go back to hospital because his pain wasn't getting any better. He cried like four hours. I have to took him in the car to drive around. I drive around for like one and a half hour just to make sure he sleeps. So they went back to hospital where Hian was pronounced dead. For me, he was my boy. (laughs) 
So Joe, every one of these deaths is of course tragic in its own right. Beyond that though, what struck you when you came across these cases? Right. Well, I mean, I guess to address the obvious is that they've come in the context of a pandemic and which we all know that the health system is under immense pressure. And also it's important to say that none of the parents have said publicly that they believe that race was the factor that was fatal in, in, in these cases. So it's clear there's a lot of things going on, but it's also clear that there are cultural barriers at play here. And it was something that I didn't feel was being spoken about in the discussion around these and, and similar incidents. And so that was something that I wanted to pick up on and try and unpack a little bit. So what did you learn about these cultural barriers and the role that race plays from your reporting? Yeah, well, I think it's important to note at this point that I'm a white reporter. So this is not a subject upon which I have any direct personal experience. But looking at these three tragic deaths and then asking the question to a broader audience, it became apparent quite quickly just how widespread this phenomenon is, how widespread these barriers are, and the impacts that are having on people's lives. And again, it's 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 not something that we have I guess, hard data on, and and that's part of the problem. But it does appear certainly that this is occurring overwhelmingly to people of colour and disproportionately perhaps to to families from the Indian subcontinent. Mm. You know, speaking to some of the parents involved in these cases, which have had the most tragic outcomes you can imagine, it was a really harrowing experience. And it is revealing how difficult a subject it is to talk about not only losing a child, but then having to address an issue like racism and what impact that might have had upon it. But for every one of these tragic cases, there are so many others out there which we just don't hear about. So it just became clear that this is a subject that we need to get more comfortable talking about. I know we did a reader call out recently to find out if people had direct experiences of racism within the healthcare system, what kinds of responses did we get? People told a range of stories of interactions they'd had with healthcare professionals at hospitals and clinics. And it was interesting that there were very few stories of what you'd describe as overt racism. So there weren't necessarily racial slurs involved, but some readers recalled being prejudged incorrectly because of their race and a misdiagnosis has the potential to be deadly. Mm. So, for example, one reader said his brother took him to the emergency room after he experienced a sharp pain in the side of his stomach. And the doctor began profiling our skin colour, heritage, religion and customs. A doctor started asking him about his skin colour, his religion, when they came to Australia, how they became citizens. What do you usually eat? What do you do for a living? And my favourite question, your English is pretty good. What part of Africa are you from? Meanwhile, the pain was getting really bad. The doctor came back with a book on foreign illnesses in East Africa and mentioned what he thought I had, yellow fever. After he finished talking, my brother in a calm voice informed him, Doctor, this kid's never been to Africa, was not born in Africa, nor visited anywhere in Africa for even a trip. He said he was ultimately diagnosed by another doctor with appendicitis and was taken into surgery within 20 minutes. Another reader talked about being discharged from hospital with a kidney stone and running out of the pain relief medication he was prescribed. He went to a clinic to try and get some more. After waiting a few minutes, the doctors started calling out my name loudly, overpronouncing it in an exaggerated, mocking, derogatory way. At this stage, I was bent over in pain and groaning. 
He then asked, do you often make this noise? The reader said the GP weighed him and took his height, which he'd never been asked to do before. Even though he explained his situation, the doctor refused to prescribe him the pain medication unless he could prove he really had a kidney stone. I still had my hospital ID bracelet on. I showed this to him and suggested he call the hospital to verify my condition. He flatly refused, saying unless I could remember the treating GP's name, he wouldn't believe me. He said something like, you're an intelligent fellow, you can't remember their name? All the while saying my name in more ridiculous mispronunciations. I think he assumed I was acting to get drugs due to my race and appearance. As a person of colour, you can tell when you're being racially taunted. It's not obvious to most. That is why it's so hard to call out. So, Joe, from your reporting and what we're hearing from readers, it sounds like, anecdotally at least, racial bias is pervasive in the health sector. Is that something that's being observed more broadly than that? So the Australian Race Discrimination Commissioner, Chin Tan, says systemic racism within the health sector is undermining access to services, diagnosis, treatment and care. He says there is a lack of cultural understanding and sensitivity, as well as unconscious bias, which means people from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds are not always provided with appropriate care. And importantly, he spoke about how this systemic racism can lead to avoidable deaths, but also near misses. These cases where people are misdiagnosed um, or not listened to, but manage to survive the encounter. So yeah, we know that this is an issue that is starting to be taken seriously. Next, doctors speak up about racism in the health system. So, Joe, so far we've talked about patients' experience of the healthcare system and potential racial bias. What about doctors in the system? What do they say about this problem? I spoke with a number of doctors from different cultural backgrounds about their experiences. And they told me that there are cultural barriers and differences that are inherent in the healthcare system that are being magnified now that's under this immense pressure from the pandemic. Yeah, and you wanted me to speak to one in particular. Yeah, Dr. Nada Hamad, she has a really great perspective on this issue, both as a healthcare professional and also as a woman of colour. My name is Associate Professor Nada Hamad. I'm a haematologist in Sydney. When did you first realise that race played a role in the way healthcare is distributed? With my first child, I had a prolonged labor. It wasn't going very well for, you know, whatever reason. Um, And so I was in labor for hours before my obstetrician decided that we probably have to progress things along. And he recommended an epidural. He clearly saw that I was in a lot of pain. And once he left and made the prescription, the midwife who was looking after me, who was a lovely midwife, But she did the offhanded comment and said, you know, you don't need an epidural, do you? Your people are great at birthing. You'll be fine. And I didn't make much of it. And of course, you know, I I had my baby. It was actually quite a, a traumatic experience. I had a lot of problems with breastfeeding. And another lactation consultant said to me, oh, don't worry about it. You know, black people's milk comes in later. And it was now about day five and, you know, my child was looking a bit more dehydrated, was crying all the time and I was worried, but I was a first time mom and I didn't know any better. And so I I really believed what she, she had said to me because I felt that she was the expert and she was here to look after me. But in fact, 
you know, I later discovered that that's entirely just not true. It's it's just a misconception. It's not backed up by evidence. It's not backed up by anything. <laughs> so, you know, to the detriment of my child who I had to, you know, supplement feed and bring back into hospital within um, 24 hours of leaving because she wasn't feeding and, um, and, and so on and so forth. And at the time, again, I didn't really occur to me that it wasn't true. I didn't question it until 10 years later when I, I heard someone talk about the same phrases, the same biases and preconceptions or misconceptions that were applied worldwide to all of the Black women that go through childbirth and labor. And I was I was disappointed that that was so pervasive. You know, the issue around a comment like, you know, Black people are good at birthing was interesting because it's contrary to the experience of what actually happens to Black women. So obstetric outcomes in Black women around the world is actually a significant public health issue with poor obstetric outcomes and infant mortality rates uh, during childbirth that are much higher than the average and what is expected. And in fact, Black women probably require a little bit more attention and care because there is evidence to show that their pain is often minimized and their concerns are often not heard, resulting in harm. So, Nada, there are three high-profile cases recently where children died either in hospital or after being discharged from hospital after their parents said that healthcare workers refused their pleas for more urgent care for them. What have you observed about this particular experience as a doctor? Look, I think... um you know, not knowing the cases individually. I won't make any judgment about the cases. But the things that rang true to me, the way people express distress or express concern, sometimes it's just not recognized for what it is. And other times it's dismissed because it, it isn't recognized rather than a explicit ignorance or an explicit desire to minimize or dismiss someone. So uh, I see this as a uh, a problem that arises in systems that don't acknowledge systemic bias rather than individual problems. And I feel terrible for those families. Mm. And I think that, you know, if you're in a system that you don't understand, you're in a situation you are vulnerable, you can't compute really how to overcome those non-intangible barriers, those invisible barriers. How, how do you address that if you don't even know that they're there? So you see this play out in many situations um, in hospitals, but when it goes really wrong, it's extremely difficult to ignore. I think most people expect that in Australia, doctors will treat all patients equally, regardless of where they come from or what they look like based on their medical need. What do you make of how that actually plays out in reality. What sometimes is missing is recognising that those of different cultural backgrounds to us are not necessarily catered for that way. So everything in society, in culture, in media, in politics, in policy is all designed by people who are either in positions of authority or power or privilege. And that tends to be a specific stereotype of white, male. So in that light, the design of our healthcare systems, of our policies, it's not fair to expect that they would cater for everyone equally. The design does not take into account the differences in uh, perspectives and cultures and experiences. 
Nada says that systemic racism is inherent in Australia's health system, and it often shows up in the form of unconscious racial bias. One of the issues I find unique to Australia is that there's a reluctance to acknowledge that the bias exists. Mm. Um, And using the word racism or racist is so offensive to most people because somehow it implies that someone is intentionally being discriminatory. And that is absolutely not the case. You know, the the term is not a slur. The term is not an insult. The term is just descriptive of what kind of bias you hold. It's a bias based on race or a bias based on gender, so racist and sexist. It doesn't mean that you are a terrible human being. It just means that you're like everybody else and you hold biases that serve us well most of the time. It's just a matter of what is harmful to you as an individual, what's harmful to our society and community and to others is what we're trying to address when we talk about systemic racism or systemic gender bias. She's also had to reflect on her own racial and gender biases. Just because I'm a woman of colour doesn't mean that I'm not causing harm and perpetuating implicit bias. Uh, I wasn't taught medicine by people that looked like me, right? So I think, you know, you internalise a lot of things without knowing. Mm. So I did an implicit bias test. In the Harvard test, it's, it's around blackness. And so if you have a racial bias towards blackness, it will tell you. And the same applies against gender, about against women. And I was horrified that I had implicit racial and sexual bias. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> wow. So just to be really clear, so you identify as a black woman, but this test showed you that you had bias against black people and women? Yes. <laughs> wow. So it was very confronting. So... um I did the tests and I had to reflect and think and do the work and read and learn. And and over time, it actually changes. I did the test again and it improved and it continues to improve. And I think the moral of that story is that everyone can do that. Everyone has to start from somewhere. You have to acknowledge that you hold bias before you can address that in your own self. So, Joe, what have doctors told you about unconscious racial bias in the healthcare system? Okay, so I, I spoke to Dr. Nisha Cott, who is South Asian, and she's an obstetrician gynecologist in Melbourne, and she's worked in hospitals in the UK and Australia. Dr. Cott says one common misconception she's heard is something called Begum syndrome, and this is a racist belief that brown-skinned women complain more about pain than others, which is troubling because you can see how this assumption can lead to women's pain being dismissed. I mean, there's well-documented research that women's pain, for example, has historically been dismissed by the medical profession. But what about the experience of people from different cultural backgrounds when they they complain of pain? There is no shortage of science to back up um, the the idea that there is systemic racism, there is minimization of black pain, there are negative experiences of obstetric care amongst people of color. You know, this is something that's been demonstrated over and over and there's data for it in Australia as well. In the UK, experiences of patients of color of the healthcare system, just their experience of the healthcare system, has been demonstrated to be poorer. And You know, the UK is a country that's extremely diverse and they have significant diversity in their healthcare workers. We we don't have that level of diversity. The data even in Australia around healthcare team diversity is is actually absent. We don't look for it. Mm. Specifically, what kind of data are you saying 
we should be collecting that we're not collecting at the moment and would benefit from having? You know, in general, ethnicity information in public health information is important. For example, Medicare data, uh, outcome data does not have an ethnicity attached to it. So we collect information about whether a patient who comes into the healthcare system is Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, but that stops there. We don't actually collect information Mm. about different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different intersectional identities that may be of relevance and importance so that we can demonstrate or observe if our system is serving those groups equally. So if I was to say, you know, what are the cancer outcomes um, for patients with an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander background versus everybody else, unlike other countries such as the US, Canada and the UK, which have similar healthcare systems to us, they actually look for that information and try at some point address it. You know, when you see the difference, it's validating for for people to see that they're acknowledged, that their experiences are important, um, that their lives are important and matter to the system. If you don't look, you won't find. And therein lies the problem, I think, for us here in Australia. Joe, Nada thinks we should be collecting data about the health outcomes of different cultural groups and also about the diversity of the healthcare workforce to try to address these systemic racial biases. What work is being done on this currently? I know the Australian Human Rights Commission is working on a public awareness campaign to address the issue of systemic racism, broadly speaking, but specifically also within our healthcare system and hospitals. And we know that the federal government has flagged collecting better data or more comprehensive data relating to ethnic and cultural diversity, as well as information around the disparities of health outcomes uh, in our hospitals. And are the hospitals involved in the deaths of these children that we've discussed doing anything to address this issue of unconscious bias themselves? Well, they certainly say they are. Monash Health told me that it provides all its employees with ongoing cultural sensitivity and unconscious bias training. Um, And they also said they have a community advisory committee to proactively remove any barriers to care with a focus on working in collaboration with workers from, from different backgrounds. Western Australia's Child and Adolescent Health Services says it has a multicultural lens on everything it does and that it takes cultural training as a priority. Nada, some have raised cultural training in the medical profession as a practical way to help healthcare workers improve their cultural competence and awareness of their patients. What do you make of this particular strategy? I don't think cultural sensitivity training is a solution. It does not address the systemic inbuilt bias that exists both in medicine and the healthcare systems that we we have in Australia. So Mm. I think it's it's a nice way to avoid the bigger problem. But at the end of the day, this problem is pervasive and it needs to be a priority right at the top. If this was up to me, it would be central to how we design healthcare and not peripheral or secondary, like it's a bonus. It's not a bonus to ensure that all Australians should expect the same healthcare outcomes for the treatments they receive, um, given they pay taxes like everybody else and given they contribute and participate in community society um, the same way as everybody else. And so what are some of the practical things that you think healthcare professionals can do to try to uh, address some of this broader systemic racism that you see? I think there's a a number of things people can do. The first step is to look inwards 
to consider what kind of bias you hold and be open with patients. If your patients are saying something that doesn't fit the literature, be open to the idea that it's because we don't know what it's like for them. And and I actually am open to my patients. And I say, you know what, this could be a side effect to your drug I'm not aware of because the data isn't made for, for people like you. She also says that doctors need to better advocate for patients from different cultural backgrounds. It's not easy being the person who puts up their hand every time and says, you know, you forgot that, you know, this does not apply to, to this group or you forgot that this group has special needs or it, it is not easy to do that work. So do it, but look after yourself and your mental health when you do do it, because it often comes with a lot of resistance, uh, uh, you know, uh, a, a little bit of defensiveness. It comes yeah. with social risk. It comes with career risk. But, you know, the way I address this is the risk of not doing that is so much greater for the future of our children, the future of society, of our communities. And so when I assess risk of saying something, I always remember that I'm trying to be part of a history of evolving the healthcare system so that it's it's better for my kids and it's better for everyone else that comes into it. It is hard work, but it's work that needs to be done. Thanks to haematologist, Associate Professor Nada Hamad and to Joe Hinchliffe, reporter at Guardian Australia, for their time. You can read more of Joe's reporting at theguardian.com, including an article in which he interviews some of the parents of children who recently died under hospital supervision. That article also includes insights from doctors about racial and cultural barriers in the health system. It's called Deadly Combination, Unpicking Race's Role in Three Separate Tragedies. We'll post a link to the article on the Full Story website. This episode was produced by Karishma Luthria, myself and Daniel Simo, who also did the sound design and mixing. Thanks to Josh Nicholas and Joe Koning for voicing our readers' stories today. Full Story's executive producers are Miles Martignoni, Gabrielle Jackson, Molly Glassy and Laura Murphy-Oates. I'm Jane Lee. Catch you next time. <laughs>